Hi, I'm Matthew Moore, and this is a special edition of Natural Election. You'll be hearing our live podcast recording from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History, where we sought to answer the question, does my vote matter? Thanks to everyone who joined us, whether in person or over Zoom, this was a conversation where I think everyone in the room learned something, including those of us on the stage. So, without further ado, here's that live conversation. Welcome, my name is Matthew Moore. I'm a reporter and producer at KUAF. I get to work on Ozarks at Large, um, and I also get to co-host and produce Natural Election. Um, I was describing Natural Election to somebody once as a politics podcast, but it's really not a politics podcast. It's, in, it's a voter education podcast. It's a civic engagement podcast. We're not really interested in telling you who to vote for. We're telling you how to vote and why to vote and all of those sorts of questions we're wanting to answer. Um, and a question that we brought up uh, recently on the KUAF staff sounds rhetorical, but we're hoping it won't be tonight. Does my vote matter? <laughs> Sometimes it can feel that way. Sometimes when you look at the top of the ticket and you think, does it really matter if I vote because this person's going to win or this person's going to lose anyway, so why does it really matter? So I'm really excited to bring on two fantastic experts in this world who can tell us exactly why your vote does matter. Uh, on my far left here, I have Janine Perry. She is a professor of political science at the University of Arkansas and the director of the Arkansas Poll. And here in the center, I have Jennifer Price, who is the executive director of the Washington County Election Commission. Thank you both for being here with us. Thanks for having us. Well, Janine, I'll start with you. Let's start out by talking about voter turnout and who votes currently. What can you tell us about state and local turnout and how it compares to the national average? Well, I think, <clears throat> thank you for asking the question about the difference. That's really, really important and it gets overlooked. Um, most of us are aware, particularly if we're listening to this podcast or attending <laughs> uh, its recording, are aware that we've had record turnout in national level elections in 2018 and 2020. And when we say record, I want to just pause and note that um, the records have been so high they predate women's suffrage. <laughs> Right, so uh, it's it's a, they're really significant uh, records. So we've hit you know 60% or so uh, instead of the usual 55%. Not all states, of course, have have hit that, but uh, the average has been very very high in those um, congressional and then presidential elections. Um, for state and local government, however, the opposite thing is happening at almost every level of government and in both primaries and state elections. Uh, turnout is going down, and it wasn't very good to start with. So right now, just to rattle off a couple of things, um, primary election turnout uh, right now is we're lucky if we hit 30% on average. It's a hard thing to um, average across all the states because it's so many different kinds of elections. If you look at um, city elections, which used to regularly be 60 to 70%, you look at mayoral elections, they regularly now are 25% or lower. Um, and then of course, you know, just so-called off-year elections, which I call state elections, which is where almost all the relevant public policy is happening. Um, those are typically 40% at best when you get to the general election. And then we could go all the way 
down where, again, we make a significant public investment to school board elections, and it's not at all atypical here or elsewhere for turnout to be in the single digits. And that might be money on the ballot. It could be you know, millage elections or bond elections is what they call it in many parts of the country. Or it could be you know, the zone elections you know, where you might be electing a school board member. But it's, it's really not atypical uh, for those percentages to be less than 10%. Yeah, State Senator Greg Letting was on our podcast during the primary season and talked about there was an election in uh, Green, Greenwood, Greenland, excuse me, in Greenland, Arkansas, where there was an unopposed runoff election and she didn't win. Unopposed, you're hearing me, unopposed runoff election and she didn't win because she forgot to vote for herself. Yes, yes. And I mean, that does happen and obviously uncontested elections, right, that's another matter. But in many cases these elections are contested. There is a choice to be made, although there's a self-fulfilling prophecy between us not turning out and people not running and whatnot. But half of all of our tax dollars are spent by state and local governments cumulatively. They're making all the land use policy, the housing policy, the transportation policy. That, of course, feeds into climate policy. Almost every, everything you can think of, and then, of course, including K-12 education, is happening in state and local government. But that takes me to the second point to make, which is all the things that we know about how voters and national elections are representative or unrepresentative of the average person experiencing public policies in the United States on the receiving end, all of those get exaggerated when turnout's really low. So I just saw an article today that said that um, turnout in city elections, I think these were like in Dallas or somewhere in Texas, the average voter is now 25 years older than the average citizen. So the citizens turning out in these elections are older, um, they're whiter, they're more affluent, they're more likely to be homeowners, they're less and less representative of the people actually on the experiencing end of public policy. I think that's a really significant thing to note. Yeah, Jennifer, when you look at the folks who are volunteering to be poll workers, are you seeing similar, uh, similar sorts of folks? Are you seeing older, wider, uh, you know, more affluent folks who are volunteering to be poll workers? So we get um, mostly retired individuals. And so, um, you know, and we rely heavily on, you know, a lot of our poll workers are age 70 plus. Um, and so it is more difficult for, for younger uh, voters um, to, you know, take time off from work, to come and apply, to do the training, you know, to be there for election day. Um, one thing we did see, you know, because we were really concerned in 2020 when all the reports about COVID started coming out and we knew our poll workers were in that demographic of they were at the highest risk. So we didn't know how many would be willing to work, how many would, you know, be like, I think I'm going to set this election out. <laughs> and we still had to maintain polling locations. We still had to be open for the election. So we weren't really sure how that was going to work. Um, so during 2020, we actually saw a lot of much younger voters mm. sign up to be poll workers. And I've actually seen that trend carry through this year of the poll workers who are signing up are a lot younger than the typical poll workers that we've had in the past. And so we're very, you know, grateful, fortunate for yeah. that, that we do that we do see that. But obviously we rely heavily on retired individuals um, to be poll workers. Um, but we love being able to have the mixed, you, you know, ages at the polling locations 
One thing we have done and we've worked really hard with is working with the local high schools mm. because we were able to get a change in a legislative uh, session to allow high school students to actually participate as poll workers rather than just volunteers. So if they sign up to attend a training class, then they can actually work as a poll worker on election day. And so we should have about 150 high school students trained to work uh, for the general election this year in 2020. That's awesome. So we're really happy that we're able to do that. That's yeah. awesome. Wow, that is not the answer I expected in the best <laughs> way possible. That's awesome. Um, Janine, what topics or issues have come out of the primary season that you've been following along with this year and we'll see, we might see in the midterm election, the general election this November? Uh, there are so many. I think that other people in political science and sort of politics wonks might talk about. Um, but for me, what I'm most interested in, and I'll go ahead and be a little bit normative, I'm, I'm, I'm most concerned about is a further decline in the um, uh, the one-sidedness in parties, uh, in states in general, uh, where we're just seeing a decline in candidates. So primary elections increasingly in states, so blue states, right, have uh, a lot of Democratic candidates in the primary season, and red states, which is most states right now, have a lot of Republican candidates. And so the primary season is interesting, and it actually gives a little uh, boost sometimes to turnout. You know, it might jump to 33 or 35% instead of just 20 or 25% in those years. But then in the general election, of course, there's no contest because either no one runs from the off-brand party uh, or they, they don't stand much of a chance. So this is a decline that political scientists have been observing really now for 20 years, uh, just a, a decline in candidacies. And it coincides with, and you can see how it would, an increase in the average margin of victory uh, and also an increase in the number of seats that just go uncontested, so just one and only one candidate. So just a lack of competition is something that's been happening for decades, and it just seems really magnified right now. And that's not just an Arkansas thing. That's been a nationwide pattern. Well, as someone who can clearly fix this problem, how do you fix it? <laughs> exactly. Um, one of the solutions that I'm most interested in, but again, you could get to but how do you do that, it seems to be most closely coinciding with the nationalization of our elections. Some of us mm. might say, would assume that it has to do with polarization. That's actually a, a minor player in our, um, I guess, production compared to the loss of local news and attention to local news. So as newspapers, local newspapers have collapsed, as local television stations have been bought by big monopolies, there's less content, and so there's, you know, just it's this cycle, this vortex of cycling down of people don't know local elections are happening. Um, so fewer voters turn out, and uh, some people are left to just kind of uh, run, run the shop, I guess, as they wish. So yeah. um, subscribing to your local newspaper <laughs> would be a start. Okay. Or giving to your local public radio station. Yes. <laughs> uh, local public radio stations in so many places are filling. Who am I telling? But they are filling that gap. You're telling the listeners. In rural areas. Um, I know there's a place like, well, there's basically, I guess, one public radio station in Wyoming, for example. But I know Colorado, rural Colorado, those local stations are filling in with local news where the print news, like even the weeklies have collapsed. It's a, it's a major thing. So maybe it's, what do they call that? Um, creative destruction, right? Where somebody else is going to come in and help. Yeah. 
Um, Jennifer, I want to ask you about, there was an article in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, speaking of local papers, uh, recently about a FOIA request for ballot manifest reports. It was in Benton County and Washington County, and obviously you'll only be able to answer about Washington County, but what should people know about these requests for these ballot manifest reports? So these, report, these requests that we've received, um, a lot of it have to deal with the 2020 election, but we foresee that they'll deal, we'll also be getting those requests for the 2022 election. Um, so basically this report is a, instead of a summation of results, it is a line by line um, ballot report. So for every single ballot that's cast, it's also called a cast vote record as well, um, you can see how that ballot was cast. There, there's nothing in these reports that ties anything back to an individual voter. So you, you, we're not you know, breaking the secrecy of a ballot, um, but it is just a line by line, basically, how each individual ballot is cast. Um, and so in 2020, the software that we used did not automatically create this report. So we really don't have the reports that they're looking for in 2020 because it didn't automatically create it. We do have new software now in 2022, which does create that report. And so that's why we anticipate that we'll see FOIA requests for that. Um, and so, but when we look at those reports, there's a lot of things that go into it in regards to what, what can you do with that report and, and what are you looking at in that report. And we look at it because we know it exists, we know how to create it on the front end. So we always do what's called logic and accuracy, which is how we test the election. So before any election, we test to make sure that when a vote is cast for candidate A, then it actually reports a vote for candidate A. So we will go through these cast vote records as well and make sure that what we're seeing on our reporting end is matching up with the results that voters see at the end of the evening. And so we don't see anything that's in these reports that surprise us because we know how our, our voting systems work. Um, we know all the testing we've done. And the state of Arkansas in 2020 actually passed a law where they come in and do an audit of counties across the state. So it's five counties that they choose at random. They go in after the election. Um, each ballot box that you see at the polling location prints a report that's called a results tape that shows the votes that are cast at that particular polling location on that particular machine. And so the state came in did audits of five different counties. We were not one of those counties, but we will be eventually. Um, and did kind of a reverse logic and accuracy, where they actually physically hand counted the ballots to make sure that that hand count matched the results tapes in all five counties, no discrepancies, which is what we knew, which is, you know, when we're testing our election, that's what we're seeing on the front end. And it was just nice to see on the back end that it was true, you know, when you don't know what the results are going to be. So, um, but yeah, those reports, we know they exist. We know how to look for them. We know kind of making sure we're testing to make sure everything is counting correctly. Yeah. Um, Jeanine, I'll go back to you. You've said to me before that students at the University of Arkansas are typically more engaged in presidential election years than they are 
in our midterms, which we're having this year. Do you think that's true this year? And if it's not, what sort of topics are raising their engagement? Are you seeing more engagement than you might expect in a midterm year? And are there anything in particular that might be doing that? Well, I mean, I think turnout, if it goes up for their age group, which is, you know, traditionally um, the, the, the lowest, you know, anybody under 30 is, is unlikely to turn out. Uh, so we'll see. The proof will be in the pudding on the other side. Um, but I do think that they just traditionally respond to whatever the stimulus is. And the stimulus, right, is increasingly nationalized media and nationalized messaging. So um, they're pretty new to the republic. And so they're going to get kind of a, they're going to, they're, they're entering, I think, at, at that level. Most of them haven't yet directly paid property taxes or haven't thought about, you know, their paying of sales taxes. Or, you know, they might wonder why recycling's available in Fayetteville and it's not available in Flower Mound, Texas, or wherever they came from. Yeah. But they probably really haven't put it all together yet. So yes, generally they are. This year does seem maybe a little bit different, and I think it goes back to what I mentioned before, which is there has been some attention to some um, extremist policies, and, and I don't want to be too normative about that, but just policies that seem to be outside of what public opinion shows that average people want, and they seem to sort of have a sense that a lot of that's coming from their state legislatures and from the attention to governors right now. Um, so I, I do seem to be receiving more questions about, you know, participating in this round instead of waiting until president in 2024. Yeah. Is there a space where, I mean, this isn't just a, a student thing, but I think as, as we're becoming more engaged citizens, what sort of work has to be done to see that, like, A is happening, C is happening, and B is that connective tissue between those things. But what sort of information and engagement needs to happen for citizens to be able to better connect that sort of understanding? Does that make sense? news and conversation about the connective tissue and sort of where all that's coming from, conversation that maybe doesn't have to be um, loud and, you know, full with angry words and faces, because uh, that's yeah. not very welcoming to the right. new people. <laughs> they just have questions uh, about um, what comes next and who does what and that kind of thing. Um, I don't know how to help them develop that. I didn't see the first voter registration drive on campus that I've seen in some time. Some years I've seen them, and I happen to know that the deadline is passed a week later. <laughs> um, it's been some time, but uh, it was it was you know that might that might be telling. There were yeah. students talking to other students. Maybe it was the ones who were working the polls, you know, two years ago, yeah. or volunteering as high school students. Yeah, Jennifer, let's talk about that a little bit. You had mentioned before we started recording, you were talking about how um, one of the things I think we. You know, as someone who was a recent grad student at the University of Arkansas, I saw a lot of conversation, especially in 2020, about like, why don't we have a poll, polling place on campus? Can you talk a little bit about what, what the challenges are of putting a polling place at the university? So it's the same challenge we face at any location. And so, um, you know, how well known is it? Where is it located? Um, is it ADA compliant? Do they have available space for us? That's always, you know, the, the big one. And are we closing a polling location just to open up another one just because mm -hmm. maybe this location, you know, people are saying, oh, we should vote here, but traditionally people have been voting in another location. Um, so, you know, when we look at our early vote sites, um, we always look at it has to be for Washington County. We can't just look at a particular area, but obviously we want to make sure that 
voting is accessible and we have voting locations spread out throughout the county. And so in particular at the U of A, one of the challenges we always faced was um, parking and would people know where to go? Um, and so, you know, if I, you know, went to the University of Arkansas, so I know a little bit about parking and getting parking tickets <laughs> and not knowing where to park. And even to this day, when I go back, I'm really not sure. We're parking anywhere close to where you're trying yeah. to get. <laughs> and so that was always concerned because we couldn't just say, well, this is for the students or this is for the faculty members. We had to say for a voter in Washington County, how easy would it be for them to, to get to that voting location? And, um, you know, one of the things during COVID, when everything shut down, we asked the question, Bud Walton. Everyone knows where Bud Walton is. It's easy to get to, um, you know, and could we make that work? You know, could we get, you know, parking for voting during the days? Um, you know, Bud Walton has great, easy access. Ask any voter in the county, pretty much, they're all gonna know where it was. And it was just kind of the perfect storm. And so we were able to get into Bud Walton, which allowed us to open up a site at the university. And so, you know, we have those things open, you know, at a lot of different places. We have another little location that I talked about, Rise Physical Therapy, which is only open for a couple of days, but it's located next to a neighborhood market. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have, you know, on Saturday, when everyone is going shopping, you can shop, and then vote, you know? And so some of those locations come to us organically. Um, and then others, we really have to struggle to find locations um, to be able to serve all of Washington County. Um, we've been fortunate. We have 41 polling locations open in the county. We do vote centers, which means voters can vote at any location. Um, but making sure that we keep enough city locations open, but also we don't want to forget our rural voters. Yeah. And making sure that we keep rural voting locations open has always been a priority of our office because people want to vote in their communities. And so poll workers, finding poll workers for those, those locations sometimes becomes more difficult for us than in Fayetteville and Springdale. Uh, I kind of want to dig in a little bit into the does my vote matter element of this. Janine, are there any specific examples of a local election that led to a major policy outcome? Uh, yes, uh, but maybe particularly like a close one where one person's vote mattered. Yeah. Yes. Um, I remembered two, uh, well, two sort of in the general realm, and one in particular that some of your listeners might or might not remember, but it'd be interesting. So um, I remember that back in 2000, there was, and I looked this up today, there was a Ward 2 city council race. <laughs> in which there were three candidates and the second place, but it, you know, they needed to have a runoff as often happens with three candidates and the second place people were tied. So about half the states, it's not uncommon. I read state and local government news more than the average person <laughs> around the country. And you see articles like this a couple times a year where there's a tie. Uh, and different states and different communities, even inside states, do different things. But about half of them, it's basically draw straws or flip a coin. 
Uh, so there you have it. Uh, so that. Um, so here in Arkansas, yes. how do they decide that? Uh, in, uh, we are a, um, a random chance. I think it's flip a coin or draw a straw. But not everybody's like that. Sometimes they Rock, start paper, the election scissors. over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's just like games of chance. That's like half the states. And then there was quite a number of things. There can be temporary appointments. There can be the election, right, just starts over again, which sounds exhausting, Jennifer. <laughs> um, there are things like that. So that was just a general like who gets elected and who doesn't. But then I also will always remember, because I thought it was so interesting, the 2007 local election in Fayetteville about impact fees for development, so just before this explosion of change. And kind of, the, to put it simply, the more environmentally minded folks wanted to put impact fees on new developments and the more pro-developy, right? Like folks said, um, we, don't, we don't want that, that'll slow things down, there are all these other benefits. It went up for a vote at the election and it was a tie. Uh, and there was, and it was a major policy change and there was one absentee ballot that came in from overseas, you must yes. remember this, <laughs> and they're supposed to like, put the ballot in a box to keep it secret and shake it around. <laughs> but everybody was gonna know what this one person's vote was because it was either gonna change, it was gonna change the outcome of the election. So long story short, the, um, the impact fees failed. Um, and I mean, that's a pretty, a pretty major thing. But overall, it's, it's certainly, it doesn't happen all the time, but it can happen. But it, your vote's gonna matter more. This is just a matter of the math, right? The more, the local level you get. Like, I've helped out with a few school board races over the years and, and a couple of city council races. They're nonpartisan. But just by looking at all the beautiful voter files that are all publicly available, when I'm looking at them, it's like, you can win one of those elections by essentially knowing f or convincing five Fayetteville families the families, not really. It's not always the same families. But basically, you can kind of pick five families in their kin if it's just a school board race and you can say, get the word out, because we're talking hundreds of votes, not thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions. So just mathematically, it's not hard to turn an election at the local, at the local level. So school board races, city council races, um, impact fee elections, right? Um, liquor elections, local option type stuff, like that's when your vote really, really matters. Right, and you're not even, in those instances, you're not even necessarily voting for a person. You're voting for a, 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 a policy, right? And so those are the sorts of things where there's not necessarily a face to the, the person or the, the policy because it's literally faceless. It's not a person. So that's really fascinating. Um, Jennifer, can you talk us through the process of what happens between when polling places close mm -hmm and elections are announced, whether it's on TV, whether it's on KUAF, however they're, however they're announced, what happens for you in your office between it's time for the polls to close, we're gonna gather everything up and head off to uh, a shed where no one sees us, and <laughs> tell, us, tell us what goes on there. So we don't count in a shed. Uh, <laughs> I just wanna make that very clear. Um, <laughs> and so, um, our counting process is open to the public when we close the polls. That's open to the public. Basically, everything our office does is open to the public. And we want everyone to realize that, that we will never close our doors to anyone who wants to watch the process, who wants to see what we do. Um, that's always open, open to the public. And so basically, once the polls close, then our poll workers bring back the voting materials to the courthouse. We do a central location. Um, the ballot boxes at the polling locations have been counting the ballots all day. 
um, and that information is stored on a media stick that comes back to us. Also want to point out our voting equipment never hooked up to the internet, so there's no, you know, we're not transmitting information from the polls to our central count location. They're actually bringing that back to us, along with the ballots and all the paperwork. So as they bring that in, we actually, you know, do our own set of checks and balances before we release results. And everyone wants those results so quickly. I want to release accurate results. And so I will hold back because I need to make sure that if I release results, that that's true and accurate. Because if I have to come back and say, we forgot a polling location or a mistake was made, you lose trust in what we do. And so, um, you know, we take those results that come back, there's a results tape, there's a media stick, and then our poll workers during the day are keeping a handwritten list of every voter that comes into the polls. And they return back to us what's called a totals page. That's a snapshot of that polling location that tells us the number of voters that came in, the public count from the DS200, the total numbers of voters written on that list of voters. And then we have a results tape and we read that into a computer that's never hooked up to the internet. And when all those numbers match up, we have a little someone who sits there with a spreadsheet inputting those numbers. And when we, you know, at the end of the evening, we balance that spreadsheet, the information that we've read into our computer, and we expect to see matching numbers. When we do that, then we release the results. Um, but, um, so that's election night. But then you also have other ballots that we didn't count election night. So those are the military overseas ballots that have 10 days to come in, um, provisional ballots. So if someone goes to the polls to vote during early vote or election day and there is a question about their eligibility to vote or they've forgotten their ID or they requested an absentee ballot but it never got to them or they forgot to mail it, um, then those are set aside for the commission to review. And then ultimately, we add every vote into certification. Whether it changes the outcome of the election or not, it will be included in the final certification. Um. What do you, have you, well, let's start with this question. Um, have you personally had someone who has asked you about the security of elections? And, and if so, what kind of conversation do you have with them? Do you like go and show them the screens and say, <laughs> I promise this is, we're doing it right? I mean, we're, we're living in an environment right now where like these questions are being asked, whether facetiously or earnestly. You know, have you had that experience? Yeah, in fact, in 2021, I did a little class about how elections are conducted in Washington County where we talked a lot about security. Um, and I'm going to do it again before this election where we talk about the security of the elections. Um, and so we do. I will always have that conversation with voters. I will always be open and show voters here's our list and here's what we compiled and you know uh, ballots obviously those are secured in a ballot box but everything we use that night definitely um, you know our office is always open um, we're always willing to talk about it because we want voters to have faith in what we do and if you're not open about the process voters will not have faith in the results that you release and so um, we, you know, talk about the fact that, um, you know, no matter what you hear, and I know you talked about national news, I always say 
when you're getting ready to talk about elections and learn about elections, turn off the national news. Find your local media. That's gonna tell you what's happening in Washington County. That is gonna tell you what is going on here and listen to what we're doing, what we've said, you know, our office is open. Um, so, but we've had many conversations with many voters and it's important to carry on those conversations and to take their concerns seriously. I mean, do you see minds changed? Do you see people who come in and say, <laughs> oh, that was much safer than I anticipated? Yeah, we do, you know, and then sometimes there's voters who it doesn't matter, you know, and that can be on any number of topics, you know, about all types of voter ID laws or, you know, just different things that we do. But we try and make sure that a voter, you know, that they can trust what we're doing, that they can see, um, you know, the, the steps that we take to make sure we have secure elections. Yeah. I just wanted to add, that's so important, there's a, there's a truism in political science about how everybody thinks education is terrible and failing in the United States, but everybody loves their local teachers, principal, and schools. <laughs> and it feels the same way with this very loud um, and hyperbolic election discussion that we've been having, if you could call it a discussion. But really, if people would just come, I've always been someone who goes to watch them count ballots on election night at the quorum courtroom or wherever they are at the courthouse because I just think it's fun. Um, <laughs> it's so exciting to be the first one who gets the printout of the early returns mm -hmm. or you know gets it at least at the same time as the media people who are there. Uh, and I feel that way now about being a poll worker, like just going through the process and looking at how earnest everyone is and how all of us know what the machine says and what the count is and how to do it. And we're all helping each other. Like it's just your friends and neighbors trying to help you vote. There's, there's nothing scary or loud or angry about it. It doesn't need to be like that. It's really just come and see it, right? Put down the internet, <laughs> turn <laughs> off the television, whichever station you're watching, and come and interact with your friends and neighbors. Yeah, um, as we think about politics being this nationalized system that we're living in right now, even at the local level, we're also looking at uh, just the way that technology has changed so much. When you think about the work that you do with Arkansas Poll, um, how much of your work has changed over the course of the last five or ten years when you're conducting polling? How has your methodology changed? How have you gone about like reaching out to people? And are you seeing um, national level politics being injected into local polling questions? Yeah, so I've been running the Arkansas poll, this annual survey. It's now one of the oldest ones in the country, you know, that's totally public and done all the time um, for 23 years. And um, we were already kind of headed down this path. So no matter how many ways I ask, you know, what's the most pressing issue or problem in Arkansas today, I would always get a little bit of nationalization. But that's definitely more true now. So I might get immigration or you know, corruption, and it, I can only assume that that's probably coming from the national messaging when I ask something, instead of, say, education or health or, you know, something, or, or economy, right? Although sometimes there's a national injection there as well. Um, we are getting a little bit of poll shyness. Uh, uh, you know, some folks who are resistant, it just seems to be in some minds like another kind of institution that I guess is 
somehow not good. Um, but we've just changed our polling strategies. You know, we use more cell phones. We do a lot of callbacks. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> so that, but the issue, the reason we do that is that you don't just get basically what we call a convenience sample because then you would have a lot of older rural retirees um, instead of single parents who are coming and going between two jobs or trying to put the baby to bed or, you know, something along with students who are in school and, you know, that kind of thing. So we've just tried to keep up and keep a representative sample and we've been lucky to have a, a good sample that then gives us a good track record. It, it, it won't always be this way, um, but that's what we're doing is just trying to keep up with the technological changes. Yeah, over the last 23 years, do you think it's as effective now as it was when you started? Do you think it's more effective? Is effective kind of a, a spectrum? <laughs> Ac the accuracy of polls, despite some high-level fails, <laughs> um, has really never been stronger in a lot of ways. Uh, but in 2016 and 2020, for that single branch, those single elections, right, we, we had sort of some strange things that were happening in the environment. But this might be one of those times when um, being in Arkansas and the old adage that when the world ends, you want to be in Arkansas because everything year <laughs> happens 20 years later. A lot of those things, <laughs> um, a lot of those things haven't happened yet in Arkansas. So, what are some examples of that? Uh, most of it, like, well, the cell phone change was pretty slow to come to Arkansas because a lot of people were still on landlines, landlines. here. Um, and I think a lot of the hostility, sort of, you know, whatever that is, a hostile voters <laughs> hypothesis, et cetera, um, that hasn't happened with us as much, you know, lately. We still have a pretty good, what's called a cooperation rate. Those would be two examples. Yeah. Um, Jennifer, as, as, we're, as we're looking at, you know, I, I, I hope we've done a pretty decent job of letting our folks know that their vote matters. Perhaps we have some folks who are looking to vote for the first time, whether they've just come of age or whether this has been the election where they decide it's time for me to go and do it. Um, what tips or tricks for voters do you have who are looking to have the least painful experience? So we always encourage voters to go to a website called voterview.org. It is a great website run by the Secretary of State's office where you can make sure that A, you are registered to vote. So when you do show up at the polls on election day, you're actually in our, our tablets. Um, the second one is make sure your address is correct on, the, on voter view because that will cause you to have to go see a supervisor to get your address changed because your address impacts a lot of, you know, smaller elections when you talk about precincts and making sure that you're voting for those right, you know, correct house district, JP district, city wards. And so your address definitely matters, making sure that that is correct. So um, those two things um, go there. You can also see your sample ballot. Those are all, those are already loaded to voter view. We have those uploaded already so you can look at your sample ballot so that you're not surprised when you get to the polls and you you thought oh well, i just thought governor was on there and there were going to be some issues there's a whole our ballot this is you know one of the biggest 
uh, general election ballots we've had when it's not been a presidential year. So there are a lot of things on your ballot, a, a, you know, a lot of different offices on there. Um, and so, and then make a plan, you know, know where you want to go vote. Early voting, we always encourage that. It's really easy to get in and out of. You very rarely wait in a line. Um, when you get to the polls on election day, we do this when we talk about uh, tr our training for our poll workers, but for voters, it's just as important to know. When you come to vote, we don't want you to leave until you get an opportunity to vote, whether that is a regular ballot or a provisional ballot. So don't leave the poll, you know, unless you're satisfied, oh, well, yes, maybe I wasn't registered to vote or for whatever reason. There are two options for voters when they come in, a regular ballot or a provisional ballot. It's really important for voters to realize that. Um, and so, well, let's 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 go into that for just a moment. Let's talk about what does it mean to get a provisional ballot. How do you end up getting one? Uh, what are the circumstances that might lead you to need a provisional ballot? And how do you make sure that that provisional ballot actually does count? Yeah. So when you come to vote, um, we have a set of questions we're going to ask you. And the very first question we're going to ask is, do you have approved photo ID? You know, that's state law that you must provide that photo ID in order to vote. If you don't have that photo ID, you'll go see the supervisor, and that's an opportunity for you to vote a provisional ballot. In order, though, for your ballot to count for that, for that lack of photo ID, then you must take a second step, which is return to the courthouse by the Monday following the election by noon in order for your ballot to count. So that's a second step for voters that have. So if you've got that ID, make sure it's in your wallet or your back pocket, you know, when you come to, to vote, because that may cause you to have to vote a provisional ballot. Um, so that's one of the main reasons we see for voters doing that. The other one is you're not registered to vote. Um, you, let's say you went to the DMV and they said, do you want to register to vote? or you participated in a voter registration drive, or you haven't voted in 10 years, but this is the election that you decide that you're gonna go vote. Um, you know, when you show up and you're not registered to vote, you have to register 30 days before an election, which means that you're not gonna be in our poll book. We will offer you a provisional ballot because mistakes are made, and it gives us an opportunity to look to see if we can find your voter registration. Um, and then maybe you requested an absentee ballot and you never received your absentee ballot or you looked up Tuesday morning and instead of mailing that absentee ballot, it's still sitting on your kitchen table. And so you're like, I might need to go to the polls because you have that opportunity as long as we never received that original ballot to go vote and we'll count it as long as we don't see, see that. So after you vote a provisional ballot, um, then you'll receive a letter at the polling location detailing why you voted a provisional ballot. There will be a hearing um, in which you can attend to say, you know, I think my ballot should count. We actually had a woman who had registered to vote at the DMV for this primary election, and um, it never got transmitted to the Secretary of State's office or to the county clerk's office. But she had her receipt from wow. when she registered to vote at the DMV. Always and it hang was, on to your DMV it paperwork, was, folks. Yes. <laughs> it was checkmarked on there that she had requested to register to vote. She brought that receipt and we were able to count her ballot. That's um, awesome. So we very rarely have people attend the hearings um, because most people are like, oh, well, I guess I wasn't registered, but she knew she was registered to vote. And um, so we counted her ballot. but. 
We, you will receive a letter from our office before the hearing to let you know if your ballot did or did not count. If it did not count, then you are, you are, uh, you know, you can attend that hearing, present evidence on why you think your ballot should count. If the commission accepts that, um, then it will be included in our final count. I just wanted to add that I've watched this now in several polling centers, early voting and whatnot while I've been working as a poll worker and they're so gracious. Everybody tries so hard and I see I've been working a couple centers where there are younger people. I saw a parent come in with a kid hoping to bring her kid in for the first time and they could vote together and they were in the wrong county. But they were so gracious at the polling place to make sure, like, well, where do you want to be registered? How can we do this? I think they even, you know, they ran them through that whole process. There was no judgment because people are just mortified. They're embarrassed. You know, they feel ashamed or angry. And I've never seen any poll worker at the four different places I've worked um, do anything other than try to be an ambassador for the Republic. It's quite beautiful. I want to wrap up here by asking this esoteric rhetorical question um, in, in a matter-of-fact way and, and to ask does my vote matter and can you sum it up in one sentence? Why does your vote matter? Well I say yes obviously you know um, <laughs> I think your vote matters um, you know we can see it in statistics but it's more than that it's you know, making voting accessible, making it, you know, available for every voter, and that's what our office strives to do. And so we see that when you come in to vote and we can process you and you vote that, that ballot, whether it's a regular or provisional ballot, giving everyone that opportunity to be able to cast their vote is, is so important for our office. Yeah, Janine, I'll give you the last word here. Yes, it matters, and it matters exponentially more at these, you know, the, at the, as you go down into these um, state and, and local level elections. But there's also just something about having some skin in the game, you know, so that when something comes to fruition that you actually did vote for and you helped support in your community, like, I think you feel a little stake in that. And it feels like sort of a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, right, that can actually lead you into other forms of action, supporting another candidate, you know, running as someone yourself, and not just being someone who's angry behind a computer screen. <laughs> we don't need any more of those folks. We got plenty. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Janine, Jennifer, thank you so much for being here this evening. This has been a really, my favorite, my favorite kinds of conversations is when I kind of have, when I come out of them saying like, wow, I did not know that and now I do <laughs> and I'm so grateful that the two of you have offered so much wisdom here. I want to open the floor up. We've got about 10 or 15 minutes here. I want to offer folks a chance to ask questions. If you have a question, raise your hand. Uh, my friend Daniel here is going to come around with a microphone. Remember, this is being recorded, so we want to make sure that we can hear you and all of our friends who are listening on the podcast can hear you as well. If you'll say just your first name for our, for our panel so that we can uh, have that as well. My Thank name's you. Mary, and I had a question I didn't know how to answer. I've been registering voters at Farmer's Market, and because we're in a college town, I had a student from Texas show up, and she asked about getting registered to vote, and she said, well, I haven't got a new driver's license because I was, I'm on my parents' insurance. I've got the car, the Texas car, and I don't want to screw up my financial aid. So can you answer about whether, how students can register to vote? That's a wonderful question. So, yes, students can register to vote here. It won't impact um, any, their being at home. 
um, or anything like that since they are, you know, here living um, in the state of Arkansas. They still have to register 30 days before. What's important for students to know, though, she has an out-of-state driver's license, which is not an accepted form of ID, but her student ID with her with her face and her name on it is an accepted form of ID. So for student voters, it's really important that you don't show up with your Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, whatever license you have, you show up with your student ID. So she would need to put her address where she's living. So she can put her dorm, if she's living in the dorm, she would put her dorm. Um, also an option for students that are living out of that are here in Arkansas but are in Texas, they can also, if they want to vote at their local level, they could request an absentee ballot from their county clerk where they live. So that's definitely an option too, depending on, you know, which local races they might want to vote on. Well, maybe that's a good, maybe that's a good follow-up question for people who, you know, uh, are, are you know, their students, they live in, they live in one place, but they reside here throughout the year. Um, you know, this might be a question for you, Janine. How do you, you know, how do you help students decide which election they're going to vote in? Um, I just generally try to give them information, uh, but the best thing they can do is start asking those questions early because they have a couple of options. How wonderful, right? There are only about two dozen stable democracies in the world, so congratulations. You're just in a hyper-complicated one. <laughs> um, Almost, uh, actually all of our surrounding states have almost exactly the same deadline in most years. So about 30 days they could register at home. Um, absentee deadlines, right, are usually about 30 days as well, although that can vary. Um, and so if they're in my office, sometimes we'll just get online and look for, well, do I still have time and how would you request an absentee ballot? So it's just really informing them of how to get started but so I know my first couple years I voted absentee I was in the same state but I voted absentee because my parents knew a lot more about the local level elections and I wanted to talk with them about it um, but then later I ended up registering right in the home community because I felt some more skin in the game about you know how the roads were developing and and you know a number recycling and a number of other things in that community so it takes a little longer conversation, but I think maybe um, we could all be patient in this college town, which it sounds like you were, yeah. and just be sure they understand their options um, and that they should all start early. Hi, uh, I'm Richard, and uh, I, I think this is mostly for Janine. <clears throat> um, I was wondering, I've heard um, over the past couple years of some states doing ranked choice voting, and um, that what I hear is the intention is to have more moderate representation um, where the um, primaries tend to be extreme and then it's kind of comparing one extreme to another. And I just was wondering, I don't know how many states have that or if it's a state thing only or um, kind of does it really work to be more moderate um, and, and how do you get your state to do it? Yes, yeah, so it's just a handful of places so far that have tried it. So we're always a little hesitant to say, yes, it works or no, it doesn't. Think about it like vaccine trials, right? We want to keep running it and everybody's like, stick it in my arm. <laughs> <laughs> we want to be sure uh, before we put the word out there. Um, but yes, that was one of the things I didn't mention as a consequence of this pulling away from each other that red and state red and blue states are doing is that you know we're getting candidates who only have to appeal in a primary election so if you kind of think about voters as being on a normal curve right the in the primaries the 
candidates on the left and the right are running way to the edges and now they're not required to run back to the center because there's really no contest the general election. So ranked choice voting does seem to show some promise in terms of people still having to appeal um, to more to more to where most voters are, which is actually somewhere around around the center. Uh, it's pretty hard to make big institutional changes like that. It takes a sustained effort and really committed people. Um, but it's the kind of thing that um, may yet help kind of right our, 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 our rocky place right now in the Republic. We feel if it feels a little fragile, I'm of the opinion that it is a little fragile right now. Right. It's worth, it's worth mentioning that in 2020, there was a proposed amendment that was almost on the ballot and got turned away um, that was revolving around ranked choice voting. Um, and it, didn't, it did not end up being on the ballot in 2020. But it's something that folks have tried to do in Arkansas. Um, there has been pushback from uh, the people you would expect pushback from, elected officials. Um, and so I'm, I'm very interested to see as well. And I'm, you know, we have made it very close <laughs> to getting it on the ballot here in Arkansas, but it hasn't happened yet. Hi, I'm Bonnie. Super excited to be here. Uh, primary reform is on the horizon, just we'll say that. Um, but I do have a question and maybe you all will be addressing this in, or maybe you have in this podcast series. Um, the new voting laws that will be in place for this election that were passed in the last legislative session. Um, I know, so Jennifer, you talked about the provisional ballot process. And so this year it's gonna be different for this election. And so I was just wondering if you could speak to how it worked in the past versus what the new requirement, the new law is for this election. Yeah, so the provisional law, um, in previous elections, when a voter was unable to show ID at the polling location or uh, when they were voting absentee, there was an extra uh, line basically that the voter could sign an affirmation stating that they were who they said they were. And um, so on the voter statement for the absentee ballots, if a voter was unable to provide a copy of their photo ID, they could uh, sign that affidavit basically and um, we would be able to count their ballot. Uh, then also for uh, election day voting or in-person voting, if you were unable to show ID, then you could vote a provisional ballot and you would sign that affirmation and then there was not a second step that you had to take. So the current law is that um, in-person voting, if you're unable to show ID, you will be allowed to vote a provisional ballot, but just know that you must return to the courthouse to show your photo ID. Um, and that's to the county clerk's office. And so you'll, you know, show your ID there. They'll, there's some little bit of paperwork that you have to fill out. The same thing for voters when they're voting absentees. Um, they must provide a copy of their photo ID. If they don't, then they are notified. We, um, you know, after the primary election, you know, we had a handful of voters for absentee voting because one of the difficulties is, is that in person voting, you knew right away that you didn't show your ID and this was what was gonna happen. But for absentee voting, sometimes the voters weren't aware that they didn't include their ID. They didn't realize that they needed to include their ID and the deadline was too close for us to mail a letter. So we called 
all of those voters to let them know, hey, we didn't find a copy of your ID and then you need to come and show your ID. One of the things that we found from that process was several of those voters were living in uh, residential care facilities or nursing homes and had out-of-state driver's license or had expired license. And so we actually, I met two weeks ago with uh, residential care facilities, nursing homes in Washington and Benton County to let them know that there's a form that the administrator can fill out for those voters that they can sign, they can attest to that this is that person and if they'll just make copies and include it in their voter statements, we can get their ballots to be able to be counted. Um, so, you know, uh, so it is super important to you know have that ID because of that additional step. Hi, I'm Laura. Uh, thanks for being here tonight. Um, I, th I get confused about all the new rules, and I and I have a vague memory that your signature has to match your registration signature or something. I think I registered to vote with a different name in like 1991 or something. Um, so if somebody tried to challenge my vote, would my signature at the polling place have to match my old registration? What is the current rule on that? So you're talking about in-person voting versus, and I'll talk a little bit about absentee voting because that's where it really comes into play more. So when you vote in person and you sign the poll book, there is not something that we're comparing your signature to because our poll workers are not signature, you know, uh, experts. We've not taken a class on that. Um, and so when you sign the poll book, um, your signature is, is your signature that you sign in the poll book. So we're not looking back at that um, is for in-person voting. Um, for absentee voting, that's where the signature comparison becomes an issue when we're looking at not necessarily their voter registration form, but their absentee uh, application versus their voter statement. That's, that's the two signatures that we compare. And if there is um, not enough similarity between the two signatures, their ballot will be rejected. Um, and there is no way for the voter to fix that. So they do get notified, but there isn't a recourse for them. So a um, couple of things that we kind of talk about, um, make sure when you do for voters, for your application and your, and your uh, statement, no one else can sign for you. A lot of times we get applications where um, the voter has maybe signed that and maybe they have a physical ailment um, and then by the time we get their voter statement, someone else has, has power of attorney. So they think that that means I can sign for that individual. And they even write us nice little notes saying I have power of attorney, um, but we need the actual voter to sign. And so we're comparing those two signatures. Um, and so that's the two, that's the area where we find that we unfortunately have to reject if we can't find similarity in the two signatures. So for most people, it's just the difference of weeks, not the difference of decades. Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay, okay. Well, that's good news. And someone would have to challenge it, right? 
for in-person or absentees. So absentees, the way it works is we have a team basically who canvass the absentee ballots and they are opening up the, the uh, you know, once we start, they look at the voter statement, they compare it to the application. The way we run our team here in Washington County is that original team, if there's a question about the signature, then it goes to a second look. And then it goes to a supervisor look. And if those three teams say, mm, I don't think these signatures match, then it's set aside for the election commission to ultimately review and determine whether it counts. So we don't just take one set of eyes at it. We have several sets of eyes look at it to, to make sure that we're not making, you know, because we're not handwriting experts either, um, to make sure that we're making the correct judgment call. My name is Margarita, and um, I have three questions. So I, I'm going to start with uh, the first one. Uh, the um, voter the ID and how hard it is to obtain a replacement for an ID or driver's license here in Arkansas. And I had a case recently when this lady was uh, robbed, so she lost all her documents, and we had a lot, uh, very difficult time obtaining the, the ID because to obtain one, she needs to bring another one, another document. So everything was lost, and we went back and forth. I had to uh, have to reach um, a state representative uh, to intervene because uh, we were back and forth in circles. And um, in this case, to 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 vote, can the person bring the police report? in lieu of uh, ID. <laughs> so in-person voting, um, they have to show an approved form of ID and then they would, would vote a provisional ballot. That gives them a little bit more time. You know, this would be under the assumption that election day is November the 8th and they were robbed November the 7th and so there was no time to try and get um, a new a new ID. Um, if they vote a provisional ballot on election day, that gives them another full week to try and get together the, the information they have. Um, I would encourage anyone who is having difficulty getting a type of ID, the county clerk does issue uh, free IDs for voting um, to call the county clerk's office. They will be more than willing to work with you, go over what types of documents you need to bring. Sometimes it's, it's pretty straightforward and you can get a free photo ID that's for voting purposes only. Um, and so that's really important. You know, a lot of voters don't know that or aren't aware of that. I think maybe the clerk has issued five, you know, out of 141,000 registered voters or so that we have. Um, so, um, you know, if this happens well in advance of election day, you've got a little bit more time, call your county clerk's office, call our office, we'll help you as much as we can or help any individual. Um, but there is that type of ID out there that they can get for voting purposes. Yeah, I'm gonna mark that under a thing I didn't know until tonight again. <laughs> and also Matthew 444-1711. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. the county clerk's office. Right. I'm not looking yes. at a piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the kind of thing I love to share. Okay. Uh, probably something that we can advertise that if they have this situation. Okay, um, very good. Second, uh, 
we live in Springdale and we do a lot of voter registration and sometimes uh, people don't know the, the zip code or because there is a line uh, that part of Springdale belongs to Benton County and another part belongs to Washington County. And I have, probably I have made the mistake that put Washington because the, the person doesn't know if they belong to Washington and Benton or Benton. And I had in the past people deny um, the voting right because they are trying to vote in the wrong um, county. So what can be done in those cases? So a couple of things. One, um, for voters, especially when you're filling out a voter registration card, don't wait till the deadline. Uh, you know, don't don't wait till to that deadline. But um, uh, call your county clerk's office. I have found that, and I can speak for Washington and Benton County, having worked closely with both of those offices, they are always more than willing to look up an address for you to help you figure out if that voter registration card needs to go to the Benton County Clerk's Office or the Washington County Clerk's Office. Um, I know you gave out uh, Washington counties. I don't have Benton counties off I the top either. of my head, <laughs> but um, um, it's it's on their website. I have found their both county clerk's offices will help you, and it's better to ask the question before you turn the form in and the, rather than to turn it in and wait to see. Um, a lot of times when the county clerk's office gets a voter registration card and they can't either read the address, because sometimes some voters handwriting, maybe they can't see what the zip code or, or what the apartment number is. There's a place on voter registration cards for the voter to put their phone number. If you put your phone number on that voter registration card, it lets the county clerk call you to say, hey, we received this card, we can't read this, can you clarify? And so that's another key thing when you do voter registration drives is to have voters put their phone number or email on them because I've seen the clerk call and email voters to, to make sure they can get them registered to vote. Okay, and the last one. One, uh, we are doing voter registrations. Sometimes uh, we just don't get on time to the uh, clerk's office, and they are just closing, so we end up uh, holding uh, the, the registrations for the next day, and is there a way that those can count um, before the deadline, even if they are uh, turned early in the first thing in the morning? Because uh, I have sent uh, a staff member to, to deliver those and say it is closed already. So what can we do in those cases? So Since the, the people are actually registering before the deadline. So um, if you've done a voter registration drive and you've tried to uh, turn it into the clerk's office on the last day um, and the clerk's office is closed, you can go to the post office if the post office is still open and mail them to the Secretary of State's office, but make sure at the post office that it's postmarked that day, which is the deadline, because then they will be able to accept them if they're postmarked on the election, on the deadline to register to vote. Yeah, I'm Richard again. Um, and I was wondering, um, the 
Last day to register to vote is 30 days before the election. Um, what happens if you move between that day and election day? Um, what are your choices? Do you just, yeah. So um, if you move with inside the county, let's say you are a registered voter um, and you move with inside the county, we can change your address on election day or when you vote in, when you vote in person. Um, but I always encourage everyone, go to Voter View, check your address. But if you don't do that when you come into the polls, we can change your address that day. The tricky part is if you move between counties. Um, so if you're registered to vote in Washington County and you move to Benton County, the deadline to change your voter registration is four days before the election. But you cannot do it over the phone and you can't do it at the polling location. You have to fill out a new voter registration card and get that turned in by the, by the Friday before the election. So anytime you move between counties in the state of Arkansas, you must fill out a new voter registration card and make sure that's turned in four days before the election day. So you get a little bit more time once you are a registered voter. Before we wrap up here, I wanna make sure we say this on the record. What is the last day to register to vote? So the last day to register to vote this year is actually October the 11th because the actual deadline falls on a Sunday and then Monday is a holiday. So it's actually October the 11th, which okay. is a Tuesday. Great, October 11th is the last day to register. If you've not had an opportunity to do that, please do that. We do have registration forms outside. Thank you to our friends, the League of Women Voters who have brought those. Um, and election day this year is November 8th. Yes. Excellent. And you can early vote anytime before that starting on October the 24th. Typical hours are 8 to 6 Monday through Friday and at a lot of locations on Saturday from 10 until 4. All of that information is posted on our website um, and it's also posted at VoterView. Awesome. Jennifer Price, Janine Perry, thank you so much for being with us today. Folks, thanks for coming out. We appreciate your time. And uh, if you haven't had a chance yet, make sure to uh, subscribe to the podcast. We do things besides these really cool panels. We do really well, heavily reported stories about elections. We're, we're so grateful that you made it out. If you get a chance, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. And thank you for coming out today. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Natural Election is hosted by me, Matthew Moore, and Daniel Carruth. Thanks to our guests, Janine Perry and Jennifer Price. Special thanks to our friends at the Pryor Center, Randy Dixon, Susan Kendrick Perry, and Alessandro Slemming. If you haven't had a chance yet, subscribe to the podcast. We'll talk to you on Tuesday. I learned a bunch of stuff. That's great.